Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. It is reported by TASS, uh, Medvedev issues warning over plans by Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Dmitry Medvedev explained that it would be necessary to beef up the ground, the group of ground troops and the air defense system and deploy substantial naval forces in the Gulf of Finland. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our first guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea, film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. Regis, welcome back. Well, thank you very much, Wilmer and Garland. It's always great to be with you. So uh, Russia, it's reported, will beef up security along its western borders if Sweden and Finland join NATO, and there would be no more talk of a nuclear-free Baltic. Deputy Chairman of the Security Council of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, wrote this on his Telegram channel uh, earlier today. Very soon... That is precisely by this summer, the world will become even, quote unquote, safer, he noted. If Sweden and Finland join NATO, the length of the alliance's land border with Russia will more than double. Naturally, it will be necessary to strengthen these borders, he maintained. And uh, Regis, this sounds eerily reminiscent to the promises President Putin made regarding Ukraine. I would say to those involved, ignore at your own peril. Yeah, this is, in my opinion, very serious. Um, you know, it's, it's no secret that the United States and its vassals in NATO and Europe uh, have been conducting war games in Sweden and Finland, and they are preparing to uh, conduct these war games in the Arctic. This is the whole point. Uh, they are trying to overextend Russia militarily, forcing it to have to defend its borders, and its borders are enormous. It's the largest landmass on the planet. Um, Russia has no options but to intensify and increase its forces along its border. Now, in my opinion, when I read this today, I thought, oh my God, is this going to be another red line for Russia? Uh, when, one, when you look at a map and you look at Sweden, which is, is just across the water, I mean, you, you take a ferry to come from Sweden into St. Petersburg, uh, Sweden and Finland go all the way north, up into the Arctic. And um, I don't know, I think it's a very, very dangerous ploy that the United States is, is, is doing right now. It doesn't look good. It's, in light of everything that's happening on the ground now in Ukraine, it's another escalation, in my opinion, of what the United States is trying to do. 
I think the other thing you have to look at it, too, is it exposes the preposterous nature of the argument that NATO is a defensive force and that it's there to create <laughs> peace. It's clearly, I mean, if it's a defensive force and it's there to create peace, they would look at the Ukraine incident and say, does that create a greater um, you know, is there a greater possibility for war or peace? And how can we act? It is making it clear that Russia's argument that the that NATO a is a simply an instrument, a tool of the U.S. empire, and it is intended to encircle and pressure Russia and that the whole grand chessboard strategy to tear Russia to pieces. That, that That's all it really is. And the rest is a lie. I think this makes it. It, it, nothing could make it clearer that this is um, that that's a reality. Yeah, I, I I can't add to that, Carl, and I agree with you 100. percent There are some other, uh, I guess, developing uh, stories that have not uh, really received an awful lot of attention here. There's a large movement of Russian troops to the Donbas Russian border. Uh, you you told us uh, other troops moving in from the south and the north behind the entrenched Ukrainians and Nazi forces on the Donbass front. What's going on here, uh, Regis? Well, well, I uh, did a show uh, last night with uh, my friend Russell Bentley, who is in Donetsk. Uh, he has a home in the Petrovsky district, which is right at the front, but he's now relocated to the city center in Donetsk. He was kind of depressed last night. He said, you know, um, we're, we're really feeling that there's going to be a climactic battle uh, right here on the front. And if, if the Ukrainian entrenched forces, including Nazi battalions, uh, attack, they will just overwhelm all of the Donbass. They'll move into Lugansk and move into Donetsk. And I thought, wow, that's kind of pessimistic. Well, this morning, he emails me very early and says, wow, boy, was I wrong. Russia is amassing troops along the border, uh, the Russian Donbass border. And, you know, pretty much Mariupol is finished. And so troops, some of the troops are able to leave there and are moving back uh, to the Donbass region, the front. And troops that uh, retreated from Kiev, uh, and they did retreat, they pulled back, they've been redeployed now to the border uh, of Russia and the Donbass. And everybody in the Donbass is expecting what they are calling, and I say, quote unquote, the climactic final battle of this conflict. Um, there are supposedly somewhere between, the numbers vary, who knows, between 80 and 150,000 entrenched and very well fortified Ukrainian National Army and and uh, Nazi battalions along the front. It is going to be a horrific, horrific battle, and many, many are going to lose their lives. I think that, uh, and I've been expecting this final battle for some time now, because now that Mariupol and other major cities have been uh, been taken by the Russian forces. The next step uh, was the Donbass, because the first reason that Putin gave for this initiative was to uh, demilitarize Ukraine from killing and continuing to kill ten, thousands and thousands of innocent civilians in the Donbass. So I think this thing is coming to a head, and I think it could happen very, very soon. 
the big question is this. It's coming to a head. And, you know, a lot of people, and I'm sure you included, would prefer that this didn't happen, that the fact of the matter is that, you know, 50 or 60 or 80,000, whatever it is, um, uh, um, uh, Ukrainian soldiers getting attacked by, you know, land, sea and air, shall we say, uh, would be a tragedy and death it would be, be far better if they could find a diplomatic solution. But here's the question. I think by now, most reasonable people recognize that the outcome of that is inevitable. You, now, I've heard a lot of people, you know, think about or discuss what they think happens. What do you see happening after that battle happens? And if the inevitable outcome happens that the Russians win that battle, what happens next? Well, when they win that battle, and they will, they will use everything that they have to to make that happen short of uh, you know, the heavy long-range bombers and strategic nuclear weapons, they won't do that at all. Um, but when they win that battle, the Ukrainian military will effectively have been destroyed. Um, now, what's going to happen next? Well, what will happen in Kiev? Will Zelensky realize he does not have an army anymore that can really protect him? There are a few thousand uh, troops around Kiev that have been protecting the city. Um, what will Russia do next? Well, for sure, uh, Zelensky East, e either has to wave the white flag and sign a peace treaty or flee. The second objective is to denazify the country. Now, denazification does not mean just eliminating, annihilating thousands and thousands of Ukrainian uh, Nazi battalions and right-wing gangs that have been roaming across Ukraine since 2014. Uh, it's, a, it's an ideology that goes way, all the way back to World War I through World War II uh, and Stepan Bandera. And his followers have created this fascist ideology in Ukraine. They've been educating children uh, at a very early age to hate Russians, uh, to hate Catholics, to hate Jews. And so cleaning up that ideology is going to take more than just a couple of weeks. It's going to take a long time to re-educate these people. So what Russia has on its hands is not a short-term fix to this phase two in the, in the denazification. But I think the war and the fighting is going to be all over except maybe in a few isolated pockets where there is some resistance. So help me square this circle, because in talking to you, you say Russia's about to basically put this thing to, to a close. Scott Ritter says the same thing. A number of people that I've talked to say the same thing. But all of this while Biden is saying that he's about to send $800 million worth of weapons into the country. So... Uh, you're sending in more arms after the fight is basically over. What I see here is the United States just trying to prolong this as long as it possibly can. What does the U.S. do? You're, you're exactly right. Um, I think they're trying. Uh, it's a last-ditch effort because there won't be really enough Ukrainian or Nazi battalions uh, left to be able to use this equipment. In fact, let me, in fact, wait a minute. Let me let, let me jump in and just ask you this: Will the weapons even make it into the country? Russia has said 
you can ship all the weapons you want. Once they get in, once they get into the country, they will be destroyed. And there was some S-300, I think, uh, uh, missile batteries that were shipped into Ukraine. They got into Ukraine. They were in a warehouse. And as soon as they put them in the warehouse and they started to unpack this shipment and get ready to send it out, the warehouse was struck by a couple of uh, uh, Russian missiles and completely destroyed. So Russia has promised to do that as soon as they get in the country. And of course, Russia has all kinds of reconnaissance. They have drones, they have people on the ground, they have satellite imagery, so they know exactly what is happening and what is coming into uh, Ukraine and what is happening on the ground. Um, th this is, I mean, I think total insanity on the part of the United States. And Biden, he, he's not the one calling the shots, and we all know that. Let me ask you this, Regis, because I've thought about this. Do you think maybe that this really is propaganda for the American people so they can continue to pretend as though, you know, um, the Ukrainians are still in the fight? Oh, we're sending them more weapons, a little bit more weapons, and they'll be able to hold out. And may, maybe they ain't even sending some of these weapons. They, if, if you know that and I know that and Dr. Wilma Leon knows it, then surely they know it. And maybe this is a, just another psyop on the American people to hold up this trope that, uh, yes, Ukrainian is, Ukraine is still in the fight and hand money to their cronies. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I know it was reported that Biden met with some of the major uh, weapons manufacturers to see what he could do to work out with them. I think the other part of it is, is to feed the military industrial complex and to get more money that's dumped into their coffers. So I think it's twofold. It's psychological ops on the American people and to uh, to keep feeding the military military industrial complex. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. It's always great to be with you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Two U.S. cities host Russia-backed radio station that spreads war propaganda. A radio station sponsored by Russian state media and hosted by Americans is spreading war propaganda in two U.S. cities, according to CNN's Alex Marquardt. His reporting. Hmm. Garland, what station could that be? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. Maybe he knows. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of, Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. So I don't know if you know what station Marquardt was talking about, but this is an interesting story in light of the fact that NBC.com reported in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. 
The biggest success of the U.S. information offensive may have been delaying the invasion itself by weeks or months, which officials believe they did, with accurate predictions that Russia intended to attack based on definitive intelligence. By the time Russia moved its troops in, the West presented a unified front. So the U.S. government is lying to the American people and rationalizing this, Jim, as the noble lie, but somehow we're the ones that are spreading propaganda and misinformation. Let me give you an analogy. Tell me if this works. This is analogous to cheating on your wife, getting caught by your wife, then lying to your wife about what she caught you doing, and then saying, well, I lied because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Jim Cavanaugh. And then pointing to the neighbor across the street. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, look, uh, this is part of a, uh, an offensive that's been in the work for a long time now, for many years, against media in general, against oppositional media, anything outside the Overton window of the dominant narrative. But it's also a part right now of really a, a regime of wartime censorship that the United States is, and the American media ostensibly without, you know, the pressure of the government, because that in that in that report, they said, oh, the FCC says they can't they can't stop, uh, you know, do any content restriction or content censorship. But we're here telling you they should, you know, <laughs> we the journalists are here telling you that they should because it's wartime propaganda, you know, as if CNN, as you say, and American media has not been engaged in wartime propaganda. And they've acknowledged it. They, they are the vehicles for the American government telling lies about the war in order to prop up support for Kiev's side and in order to generate support for America to go into a war if the president should decide to do that. This is very dangerous, and they're, they're being explicit about it. And then they come out and said, but there are these two radio stations in in." Washington and was it St. Louis? I think mm-hmm. so. Yes, and, Kansas City. Yeah. Kansas, Kansas City. Kansas City. Kansas City. Right. Washington and Kansas City, who are you know, which are funded by the Russians and uh, have American personalities. American, you guys, you know, you were there. You they quoted you, Wilmer, with a quote that was the most innocuous and banal <laughs> and obviously true thing, right? And uh, that yet this is something we have to. We should how. How can we put up with this? What's the matter? And what they're doing is they're putting pressure on that guy in, in Florida who has the, the distribution company. And they're trying to put pressure on any Americans involved in this to stop it. Uh, and it really is wartime propaganda. And we have to see what we, what's being done to us. You know, listen, I, it's just, I think it's very silly that the only place people like us can speak on the air in the United States is in a station that's funded by some Russians, but you know that is silly. Uh, you know when we win, when I win the lottery, I'll have to do something about it. But uh, <laughs> you know, until then, we'll we'll talk where they let us talk because we need to talk to Americans about what's going on and precisely to instill doubt. That is what the the CNN correspondent was so outraged about. <laughs> these these stations are instilling doubt and. About the, the the American narrative, about the Ukrainian narrative, we can't have the, 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 the radio and media instilling doubt about the government. That's just the opposite of what a media should. 
be saying. They should be saying, our job is to tell you what the government won't and to show you why you should doubt the government. But anyway. How dare you doubt the narrative of the government that admitted that it's lying to you, even though that story was still BS. I mean, the way they framed it, again, the noble lie. We lied to, we are lying to you because we have to. And how dare, you know, Vladimir Putin in Russia is it's a fascist, fascist dictatorship and you're not allowed to, but here in an open democracy, you're not allowed to doubt what the government tells you. Or I think question. There's, there's a contradiction there, but here, let me, let me, get, let me ask you about this. If you look at what this really is to me, and I'll use the Fox News war on Christmas kind of thing, it's a war on critical thinking. All they're saying is this. Look, we clearly have a dog in this fight. We are supporting Ukraine. You need to believe what we say. And you need to believe us when we tell you that anybody who doubts what we say is a bad, evil person sowing evil disinformation, evilly stuff. So you admit that you're, well, excuse me, you admit that you're on one side, but then you try to take the position that you're biased, and then you use broad terms, disinformation and propaganda. There are never any specifics. And... And critical thinking requires specifics. So, Jim, do you think I'm wrong in saying this is actually a war on critical thinking? But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're selling us cheap because we're not questioning. We are providing evidence and analysis by those who know that challenge the narrative. This is not just we we woke up this morning and decided to take a counter position. We speak to people who know. So we're creating a dynamic for what? For critical thinking. My, That's my, why I say no, it's no, a no, no, critical no, thinking. No, I'm not questioning your yeah. point there. What I'm questioning is you're, you're saying that – now I can't remember exactly what you said. But it, to me, it wasn't emphatic enough. That, okay. that, that was my point. Go, go ahead. Jim Cavanaugh. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. Look – I didn't start writing about Ukraine this year. I wrote in 2014 two very long articles, as I want to do, about what was happening in Maidan. And, and immediately, immediately thereafter, the people can go back and look at on my diplomacist.net. And, you know, you're bringing in these Sputnik brings on people who know what they're talking about, who are intelligent and give evidence and arguments. That's what you should do. It's critical thinking. You're absolutely right. Uh, Garland, it is a war on critical thinking uh, in, in, across society in a lot of ways, but a war on critical thinking. In the COVID thing, and with, certainly with, with American foreign policy, and it's in the American foreign policy sphere, and they've said it. You know, we, they've put out op-ed saying we shouldn't do so much critical thinking. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in the foreign policy sphere and in the war, war-making sphere, I mean, every American knows they've been lighted into war multiple times over the past few decades. And I mean, this is go back to remember the main, you know, where the press is part of the government apparatus that is pushing you to go to manufacturing consent for war. And this is what's happening now. And for, for, for the media, for journalists to get up and say, oh, there's a real problem with any journalism, any media that, that sows doubt about that, that makes you think twice about that, about going to war and, you know, it got, it, 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 resist wartime propaganda that we're giving you. 
I mean, that's just outrageous that that a, a journalist could think that would be something that they should say or could say and have any credibility. But that's the stage we're at now, and it's it's very frightening, and uh, it's going to get worse, I think. Well, to your point, you've used the word journalism a couple of times, and I would have to say what CNN did, that hit piece, that wasn't journalism. What what we are doing here every day is journalism, and I'm not a journalist. I, I did not study journalism in college. I, I'm a political scientist with a talk show. And so who who is doing journalism, but I'm not a journalist. And these hit pieces aren't Journalism. Well, journalism is what you do. You know, you don't have to be. There's no credential for journalism. I mean, the, the journalism school is another thing. And journalism are people who do the history of the moment. <laughs> you know, I have a PhD in literary and cultural studies. I've been interested in politics all my life, so I've never stopped doing that. You know, and I'm a person who's capable of doing research and analysis, and I've never stopped doing that. So, you know. Uh, uh, doesn't the fact that I would be hired by CNN and get a salary from CNN doesn't make me a journalist. The fact that I get nothing at all <laughs> for talking to you guys, you know, doesn't make me a journalist either. But it's the credibility of what I say that people have to listen to, and it's precisely the idea that people listen to different sources of information and analysis and make up their own minds. When you have, you know, what what, what Brian Setzer did when he when he in his first interview with Jen Psaki after his guy was elected president, was to say, ask her, the first question there was, what can we do better? How can we help you? That's, you know, I mean, they spent four years trying to demolish uh, uh, Trump, and then they can, minute Trump come, uh, Biden comes in, they say, how can we help you? Tell us how we should do our job to help you. You know, that is neither, you know that's not journalism, that's political partisanship, and that's what we have. And uh, we have political partisanship in terms of parties, and we have political partisanship in terms of the American government's exceptional, the American exceptionalism in the world, which they're all supporting. Well, apparently, apparently, Jen Psaki answered that question. You think I could get a job with a nice fat paycheck? <laughs> with MSNBC? With a nice fat paycheck? And they were like, done. So, hey, well, she answered, had a question answered, didn't she? And to, the, and to that point... From what's reported, she was negotiating between CNN and MSNBC while she was working for the White House. So the thought is she was being deferential to both MSNBC and CNN, trying to negotiate the best position for herself. I I think you're trying to sow doubt there, uh, Wilmer. Oh, I'm sorry. Disinformation. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. My mistake. Who is our job offer from CNN? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not negotiating for a job with CNN or MSNBC, and neither are you guys, and that's the point. You know, that's what, what, what there is, this kind of incestuous relationship between the media and the politicians. And the biggest liars in the political, I mean, Clapper and Brennan and these people, they get jobs at CNN and MSNBC, and they're liars. And then nobody's told what their interests are as it relates to many of the defense contractors that they work with and work work for. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Axios reports inflation surges to 8.5%, highest in over 40 years. Inflation surged again in March as consumer prices hit yet another fresh peak not seen in a generation. How significant is this, and how much of this was brought on by the administration itself? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economic Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So talk about what does this mean, 8.5% inflation, and again, how much of this is has been brought on by not only this administration, but the previous administration's policies? Well, it, uh, um, it with this inflation now at um, at 8.5 percent, that's year over year. That's compared to the same period last year. Uh, prices are up 8.5 percent. Um, uh, there, there are a number of factors that we can can put into the mix as causing this inflation. Uh, everyone would 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 expect that that the pandemic, of course, recovery has added to the in- inflation because um, demand is up. Uh, for a number of reasons, supply is down also uh, and, and has not gotten back to pre-inflation levels. And so even if demand was what it was at pre-inflation levels, that would cause some inflation uh, during recovery. Uh, the current Biden administration is not responsible for that. In fact, if the Biden administration and the former Trump administration had not uh, sent out money uh, to the community, to to the nation for recovery, we would be in a recession, and we'd be worrying about that. So that's not the that's not the Biden administration's fault. Uh, there's a supp- supply chain crisis. But, but wait a minute, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I, wait, I'm sorry to ju- but I I just heard reported on the news last night that there are some saying it's because of those programs that inflation is where it is today. They were just saying that last night. Well, this is Republicans and some Democrats exactly. who, are, who, are, who are buying the narrative that uh, we, sent, we spent too much, the government has spent too much money uh, getting out of the pandemic. Therefore, there's no more money to spend. In fact, we have to spend less. And uh, apparently the Biden administration is also buying that because they're talking about deficit reduction now. That's not the inflation now. That's the recession to come. If uh, if the government spending pulls back, but then Biden will be responsible for that. Uh, Let me ask you this, because I see this from a more I don't know if the word is fundamental, systemic, structural. And that is they're going to talk about, you know, okay, you spent a drip, which is the money spent for um, uh, uh, for covid. Um, But what they're not going to talk about is the waterfall of quantitative easing, the waterfall of military spending, these, you know, 16 trillion dollars in military spending since 2001, at least 15 trillion dollars in quantitative easing, easing, probably at least double that. So while they're like, okay, I hate I can't stand social programs. So we'll blame it on social programs because I hate them. And that gives me a great reason to get rid of them. But when you look at these other things, it ignores that there is a structural neoliberal system under there that made this inevitable, even if COVID didn't happen. COVID may have quickened it, but it made it inevitable. 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The uh, the uh, build up in military spending and the the, the quantitative easing, the uh, pushing of money out of the Federal Reserve into finance, are absolutely part of the of the general inflation process. And military spending is more inflationary than let's say putting money in consumers' hands, because military spending when you, you when you spend money on um, on military weapons, you're not creating a, a new supply of bread. So people who are working for military contractors get paid, but there's no there's not an additional loaf of bread for for them to buy, uh, and they're not going to go down to the market and buy a cruise missile, and and so military spending is in fact in fact more inflationary than than regular consumer spending, and pushing money out into the finance uh, certainly jacks up Wall Street. Uh, we have to you know you could you could almost look at the at the huge increase in Wall Street. Uh, stock values as an inflation in the stock market uh, that doesn't fa- affect the price of bread generally, but it does affect the profitability of corporations. And so, quantitative easing adds to the inflationary profit of the finance. You said you're not going to go and buy a, buy a cruise missile. I was planning to go to Costco and see if I could get one while I was after the show today, but I guess I won't. Uh, Antiwar.com reports America sanctioning itself into economic decline. No one sanctions like America. Two or three dozen countries being destabilized with many thousands dying from lack of food, medicine, and commerce makes no dent in Uncle Sam's conscience, but there is an increasingly self-destructed downside to U.S. sanctions besides the fact that simply don't work to achieve U.S. foreign policy goals while getting foreign innocents killed. Are we sanctioning ourselves into economic decline? Well, uh, the the idea of, uh, you know, the, the statement made that this has no effect on the U.S. conscience made me think about Madeleine Albright, mm. who in an interview with Leslie Stahl mm-hmm. was asked about the, uh, the sanctions on Iraq after the first Gulf War. Correct. Uh, carried on, continued on by the Clinton administration that killed uh, an estimated half a million Iraqi children. She was asked, was it worth it? And she didn't hesitate when she said, yes, it was worth it. And so if that's the consciousness that goes with sanctions, then then the whether people die or so forth, innocent people, children die as a result of sanctions is not uh, something to be considered. And so, and so you're correct. The U.S. in sanctioning and using sanctions in the way that it does uh, causes lots of, uh, of, of, of blowback. And part of that blowback now uh, sanction, with the sanctions against uh, Russia, making it more difficult for them to sell their oil and their grain and uh, you know, cooking oil and other kinds of things to countries uh, in Africa and Asia that need those, uh, those uh, resources uh, means that those countries are, have a decision to make. And that's a decision to stand with the U.S. in sanctions against Russia or to preserve the lives of their own people and deal directly with Russia and China uh, to get the things that they need. And, and they are uh, uh, seeming to, to side with uh, their own people as opposed to sanctions against the U.S. Uh, that means that the, that the, that the, the U.S. is uh, having difficulty bullying uh, these poor countries into killing their own people. That would that apparently would not bother uh, U.S. policymakers, but it does it does bother uh, persons in other countries who are who are leading leading those countries. 
And so this is, you know, it, as to me, this is a, a, certainly a sign of empire in collapse, that not only can it not make uh, poor, uh, militarily insignificant countries do its bidding, but, but there's, there's a group of those countries that are willing to break with the U.S. Um, as one metrics, uh, China is, has a development bank that is intended to, to compete with the World Bank, and there are over 160 countries around the world that have joined up in the Chinese development bank uh, in, in a split with the World Bank, which is part of that neoliberal uh, U.S.-led uh, system that's not doing well for other countries. You know, um, and also looking at this, Dr. Saheed, the U.S., I mean, there are many who argued that the economic disaster of the 1970s was brought about by the military spending, the reckless military spending of the Vietnam War. But many times the um, the, the economic policies related to uh, empire were not readily visible to the citizens. They would feel it, but it was so abstract that they didn't realize that's what was causing it. Now, Joe Biden with the sanctions and saying to people, yep, you're going to have to suffer because of the sanctions, but these are Vladimir Putin's price hikes or whatever he chooses to use. I think we're going to be looking at something different here where the people can kind of tangibly see at the pumps and things like that. And I think going into the summer and into the long term, as people start to feel this pain and they can actually equate it with empire and the results of empire, we're going to see some something that we haven't seen, I think, which is social unrest related to this economic and and eventually political uh, uh, unrest. Your thoughts? Well, the evidence is that the public is not buying this narrative from Biden that this is Putin's price hike at the pump. And and going back to the Vietnam War, one of the things that that caused the social unrest and the opposition to the Vietnam War was that the uh, uh, journalists were putting the uh, the effects of war on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the, what the U.S. policy became after that was to quote choose and embed certain journalists. In their in their war efforts, who would uh, tell the story that the U.S. military wanted to, wanted to, to tell? Now we get into an age of social media in which people on the ground with with uh, iPhone cam uh, iPhones and, and so forth can take uh, videos of what's going on around the world. Uh, you you get back into a situation where when the people uh, that the general public begins to learn of the horrors of war. And of uh, of the, the 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 false news, the fake news on on all sides that's going around. They're making up their decisions that their governments have made the wrong choices. And uh, you're right. I think we'll we'll see social um, unrest as a result of that, particularly as people in the U.S., for example, are getting a Europe level of gas prices and uh, shortages of food and and other other materials, I think people will understand that war is costly and needs to be avoided. I'm glad you brought up the media in Vietnam because I remember very clearly sitting at the kitchen table at dinner with the news on, and it was it was almost like watching a baseball game. I mean, they were giving you the body count, them versus us, and you were seeing all of this reporting uh, coming from the battlefield every single night. It played itself out on your television. 
just like you were watching Walter Cronkite, you were watching all of the who the individuals that wound up being the revered journalists of that era. Uh, they were cutting their teeth in Vietnam, and now we get castigated because we are giving the American people a different narrative that is fact-based, well-researched, and 99% of the time true. And the 1% that is not true is simply because we overlooked a data point and made a, made a small mistake. But that's not happening now, Dr. Lin Watahi. Uh, correct. Journalism is, is not what it used to be. Although there is still is the, uh, the it appears to be the tendency for, for, for journalists who want to cut their teeth as, as wartime journalists, uh, they're, they're simply, uh, uh, what journalists do is simply take whatever the Defense Department says and rebroadcast that as if it's the truth. Uh, we know from, from certainly Vietnam and from, from uh, Iraq, the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, where there were no weapons of mass destruction to be found, that that uh, we we can be lied to, and uh, we don't have journalists who are willing uh, apparently to to buck that trend, but social media uh, can, turns turns ordinary citizens in in, in the journalists. Uh, unfortunately, also ordinary citizens can can make up things and go into hysteria. So it is absolutely necessary to to do background on on, on these different reports. But there's there's the fog of war, and as they say in the in war, the first casualty is the truth, and so we should we should understand we're not getting the truth uh, necessarily from from either side. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We greatly greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, it's been a pleasure, folks. You are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Gardner Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's an interesting piece in Consortium News entitled, Twitter Wars, My Personal Experience in Twitter's Ongoing Assault on Free Speech. The author writes, at some point, the U.S. people and those they elect to higher office need to bring Twitter in line with the ideals and values Americans collectively espouse when it comes to free speech and online identity protection. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. And he's the author through of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Scott, I don't always agree with your conclusions, but the one thing I can't do is question your research and I can't question your integrity. Uh, you tweeted, quote, the Marines murdered more Iraqis in uh, Haditha than the Russians killed Ukrainians in Bucha for the simple fact that Haditha wasn't a case of false flag mass murder. Bucha, on the other hand, dot, dot, dot. Once again, you were accused of violating Twitter's rules against abuse and harassment. Scott Ritter, your thoughts? Well, I mean, first of all, 
I don't know who I'm abusing and who I'm harassing. Um, the Marines uh, were involved in a horrific uh, crime in Haditha. They murdered 26 Iraqis. It was not a false flag event. It was the real deal. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, have been accused <coughs> of murdering Ukrainians in Bucha. Um, and there is literally no evidence um, worthy of the name that can pin that on the Russians. Uh, it appears to be a false flag, not in that Ukrainian citizens didn't die, but that the people who killed them um, weren't the Russians. This is very similar to, instance, false flag attacks that were carried out, uh, chemical attacks that were carried out in Syria. It's not that the chemical event didn't occur. It's that it was done by jihadist, pro-ISIS, pro-Al-Qaeda elements um, for the purpose of putting the blame on the Syrian government. The same thing took place in Bukha, I believe. People can disagree with me. That's what I thought uh, Twitter was supposed to be a platform to encourage civil debate, dialogue, and discussion amongst you know, a, a, a people trying to navigate their way toward the truth through fact-finding and the discussion related to that. Apparently not. Apparently, this tweet, combined with a similar tweet that had brought about an earlier suspension, proved to be the stake driven through the vampire known as the real Scott Ritter uh, heart, and I'm no longer um, allowed on the uh, Twitter platform. And, and you know, what's so bad about Twitter is it's not just a, you know, it would be bad enough if it was a government platform, but it's a platform of a particular faction, of the neocon faction of the government. Well, I'm looking through a bunch of stories. You know, Elon Musk had made an offer to buy Twitter. And, um, and, and a lot of them end with something like this. And I'm going to read one of them, just the, the last sentence, two sentences. Musk brand of, uh, while we would prefer not to care about this latest development, Musk brand of pseudo-intelligent edgelord behavior implies that were he to actually acquire Twitter, he would almost certainly let a certain someone return to the platform, that being Trump. And that alone is cause for genuine concern. So the argument that he might let Trump back on Twitter, that he may back off on some of the uh, censorship. And that's reason enough to stop him. And uh, actually, in that argument, they said that if he does try to buy it, that the SEC may step in. In other words, the government may step in and stop him from buying what I believe is an intelligence community run um, operation. And that's why he can't buy it anyway, because it's an intelligence. This, to me, Twitter is nothing but an intelligence operation. And it's obviously doing the bid of Na the bidding of NATO. Your thoughts, Scott? Well, there's no doubt about that. The current um, the, the social media climate in the United States is one that um, isn't meant to be what it's supposed to be, which is to create a forum for uh, people to interact with one another. Uh, instead, it, it's become an auditorium where the people who participate are told to sit down, shut up, and listen as they're fed a, um, an official narrative that uh, is more likely than not um, not fact-driven. How do we know? <laughs> the U.S. government just admitted it. Uh, you know, the uh, senior National Security Council official brags to NBC News that, you know, yeah, we're declassifying intelligence information and then releasing it, even though we know it's not right. And we're releasing it for the purpose of creating a perception that 
may not be linked to reality. Uh, I, I can't think of anything more disgusting uh, when we speak of the need for an informed uh, citizenry than a process where the government deliberately lies to the American people and denies them the ability to question it. Now, people say, well, wait a minute, Twitter's not a government. It, it is. Twitter functions as a state actor. How do we know this? We know this because Twitter is under pressure from the United States Congress to deplatform dissenting voices that uh, Congress has deemed to be not only disinformation, but disruptive of whatever agenda Congress is pushing. And the Supreme Court has said that the government cannot use others to accomplish that which they are not permitted to do by law. Congress is getting Twitter to ban free speech that Congress otherwise would be uh, it would be impermissible for Congress to pass legislation to, to do so. That's what the First Amendment is all right. Twitter is a state actor. Twitter is a government player. Twitter is marching to the beat of the government drum. You said just a little earlier that you don't deny that people died in Bucha. The question is, who was responsible for killing them? Uh, there was CNN did a hit piece on us last night, and my voice was one of the elements that they used uh, to attack us. And Scott, that's exactly the the sound that they used was my saying. There's no question that people died in Bucha. The question is who killed them, and that and that statement by me is evidence, according to CNN, that we are a uh, anti-American propaganda machine. Just my raising that point. You, in your piece, spend an inordinate amount of time documenting the research that you did to validate the statements that you made on Twitter, which is why I said I'll never ever question your research, nor will I ever question your integrity. Well, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, that's the other thing that's frustrating about this tweet is, I think I've, I've said this before, I'm, I'm not the most, um, you know, uh, rapid tw Twitter. I mean, there's people out there who have mastered the art of getting 288 characters down instantaneously and hitting send to have an immediate impact on the world. Uh, this tweet, um, took me days to consider and over 40 minutes to actually write before I hit send. And that's because I had to do the research. I had to make sure that I wasn't putting out wrong information. I mean, you know, love me or hate me, and I respect people who do both, um, you know, you, you have to admit that, you know, one of my brand identities is the guy who got it right on Iraq. Um, and that's, you, you can't debate that. It's there. It's fact everything. Now, I take pride in that. I believe I got it right on a lot of things before that. But understand, why would I, having sacrificed so much to, to get that brand identity wasted by running off at the hip on an issue like Bucha? Why would I sacrifice my credibility as being a guy who tries to get it right, only to go off at a spur of the moment and get it so wrong? So, I research everything before I commit to it. And if I'm ever found to be wrong, um, I immediately correct it, immediately. 
I'm not afraid of saying, oh, I got that wrong. Because to me, it's imperative for me to be known as a person of integrity, especially when it comes to, you know, putting out um, analytical product. And that's what this is. This is analysis. Um, so I, I thank you for your nice words, but I, I hope your audience understands that too. You know, I don't pretend that I'm perfect. I'm not. But I will say that I have a good work ethic uh, that's founded in principles of integrity that every, everybody should aspire to, meaning before you commit to something and put it out there in the public, you've actually done the due diligence necessary to say that that is an accurate reflection of your assessment of the available fact. It doesn't mean you're right. There could be facts you don't know about that will emerge later and change things. And then you say, oh, now I'm aware of this. I've changed my position. It's now this. That's still integrity. That's the, that's the, that's the epitome of integrity, to recognize when you've been wrong and correct the issue. But to sit there and throw stuff out there that you haven't researched, call it right, say it has the imprint of God, and then criticize anybody who dares challenge it is the exact opposite. And that's a process I don't want to be involved in. You know, I think this all exposes a reality that we need to come to grips with. All the things that you are saying, what you're saying is you use research and critical thinking and you use new, you use things like strategic empathy, understanding what your adversary thinks because you're a military man and you're trained to do that. And that's why they had to throw you off Twitter. These people are liars. And they the last thing they want the American people to do is critical thinking. I just did a little search, right? And I searched this information in the news. Disinformation so doubt. And what do I see? Disinformation sows doubt and confusion. Next story. Russia continues to use social media disinformation to sow doubt. Voices sympathetic to Russia are posing as fact checkers in a bid to sow doubt. I put my right hand up. Guilty as charged on many, many radio shows, including this one, I say, you're being had, took, lied to, hoodwinked, led astray, misled, and bamboozled. It is the job of a critical thinker to sow doubt and to say to everyone, when people who have a history of lying to you tell you something, you should question it. So what they're pushing, Scott, is the opposite of what you're doing. You are a threat to these people because you think critically, you think in a nuanced way, and you recommend that others do that. You're, like Julian Assange, a danger to these uh, uh, pathological liars. But and before you respond, Scott, one thing that you stated in there, Garland, which is very, very dangerous, sympathetic to Russia. Because you speak the truth, which is counter to the American narrative, doesn't make you sympathetic to Russia. It makes you sympathetic to the truth. It makes you sympathetic to the First Amendment. But they inject that sympathetic to Russia as a way of undermining your credibility because of this binary thinking that so many people in this country have been indoctrinated into believing, it, you've got to be this or that. It's on or off. You're either with us or against us. Folks, I'm not pro-Putin, never met the man. I'm not pro-Russia, only been to the country once and made, never made it outside the airport. But I'll tell you what I am in support of, that is the truth, and that is the First Amendment. Scott Ritter, Scott these Ritter. people are liars. Your thoughts? Well, they, they are. Look, the search, of the, tr the search for the truth is the ultimate objective. It should be the ultimate objective for everybody. 
But when we talk about intelligence, especially, you know, that's what it is. I mean, the CIA has corrupted the notion, but when you enter the CIA, uh, the words, the, the truth shall set us free, are carved there. That's supposed to be the epitome. Um, you know, in, in, back in 1973, Israel was uh, got involved in the Yom Kippur War, and they were taken by surprise. Uh, and it was deemed to be a huge intelligence failure, uh, partly because their intelligence officers had lost touch with strategic empathy and started making assumptions that were so divorced from reality as to be 100% wrong. The Israelis responded by creating a new um, a new position. They called it the Doubting Thomas. It was a senior intelligence colonel. And every single assessment that was written had to go through his desk. And his job was to take every assumption you make and challenge it and to say, what are the facts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the Doubting Thomas turned the Israelis into a very professional intelligence service. And I used the Doubting Thomas as a vehicle to get Israel to challenge what they were saying about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. When the United States told Israel, you can't play that game anymore, the first person they fired was the Doubting Thomas. Hmm. And then the Israelis bought into the lies about WMD. Wow. America needs a Doubting Thomas. That's what the good citizen is, to challenge every assumption, every assertion, to demand the facts. And when we fire them by deplatforming them, we're going to head in a direction that can only bring about a disaster. And also, as we get out, the Bill of Rights, a lot of the first 10 amendments are called negative rights. And the reason is they are designed to protect the American citizen against action by the government. Hence, many of them read, the government shall not. And that's what we are standing for. And and for us to do what we do, we are doing what America is supposed to be about, not following blindly some narrative that supports the military-industrial complex and other uh, uh, imperialist elements of, uh, of a government, of a hegemon. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. sets up new Middle East Naval Task Force amid strained Gulf ties. The United States Navy yesterday said it was establishing a new multinational task force that would target arms smuggling in the waters around Yemen, the latest American military response to Houthi attacks on Saudi Arabia and the UAE. This is an interesting narrative to me. This is, quote, the latest American military response to Houthi attacks on Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I thought attack meant to take aggressive action against. Last I checked, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates were attacking Yemen and Ansar Allah were defending themselves. 
Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me, guys. So it's reported that this is an attempt by Washington to reassure the Saudis and the Emiratis who see the U.S. commitment to the region as waning by providing additional military support in recent months following the missile and drone attacks on the Gulf nations. Laith, again, drone attacks, but the Yemenis are the ones that are under attack And so to me, this is more spin. It's not that the Saudis and Emiratis see the U.S. commitment as waning, because as I thought, that's stated policy. The U.S. is turning away from the region and pivoting to China. So there's a whole lot. The the, the subtleties of this to me are incredibly telling. Your thoughts, Laith Marouf. Yes. And more than that, right now, this highlights the flip-flopping of policy that is uh, you know, being displayed in terms of the United States, the Saudis, the Emiratis in their actions with Yemen. So we have on the one hand uh, a ceasefire that is supposed to last two months at least, uh, that uh, end of air, uh, Saudi air raids into Yemen and any attacks by Yemen on Saudi infrastructure and Emirati infrastructure. And while that is supposed to also be coupled with the lifting of the siege, uh, the naval and air siege of the country, we see the Americans announce this new naval alliance specifically to increase the siege on Yemen. So where uh, we see this, it means that the United States is unable also, and its uh, vessels in the Gulf countries are unable to uh, articulate a consistent strategy in their war in Yemen. Uh, and there's on one hand showing signs that they want to end the war. On the other, it's clearly they are taking actions that are uh, going to increase the possibility of this war just uh, exploding in, in, in a whole regional manner. So these moments that we live uh, are very crucial and, and this flip-flopping of the American um, position is only increasing the possibility of uh, things uh, getting out of hand. I, I still feel as though, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you saw it, there was a, a comedy sketch that was done in a very controlled country, Saudi Arabia, where they mimicked and, and mocked Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And the fact that that was allowed to happen means, and that it was broadcast everywhere means that it was, um, if not supported, at minimum okayed by the Saudi government. I think that is a sign that the U.S. is losing its footing. And I tend to believe that some of the leaders in the Middle East are going to be more likely to move towards rapprochement, detente with each other, understanding that they don't have the U.S., a, a stable U.S. empire there anymore. Yeah, I mean, some, some of your listeners may have heard me over the years when talking on on your show, uh, highlighting the internal civil war that happened within the imperial order, specifically between the conservative, conservative and the liberal wing, conservative wing at that time being led with 
by Trump and the Saudis and uh, the Netanyahu's of the world and the other side as the Clintons and and the liberals as we saw and and what what we see right now in terms of the Saudi state you know okaying this uh, comedy mockery of the American establishment is in that sense of threatening uh, an attempt to bring back the conservative wing of the, the empire into power. Um, and um, this, you know, shows you that, you know, there's two ways that the empire can deal with this, is either withdrawing for real from the West, West Asia to concentrate, which means the, there will be confrontations on a regional level between regional players and a realignment uh, changes of power dynamics. And the other is to go to war there. <laughs> and they can't afford what the Saudis and the Emiratis would require uh, them to do. Neither can they afford, as Americans, what Israel wants to do, which is to uh, you know, have a, a war with Iran. And so one questions in, in the uh, situation that we see, the American government not a being able to set the tone of the whole regional strategy, how are not are they going to avoid unaccounted for conflicts? There is another story that is incredibly important, and I think it's to a certain degree it's flying under the radar. Uh, Marie Le Pen outlines foreign policy vision seeks rapprochement between NATO and Russia. French far-right presidential candidate Marie Le Pen has said she would pull France out of NATO's military command and push for closer links between the military alliance and Russia's uh, and Russia once the war in Ukraine is over. Uh, this anti-NATO position sounds a bit Trumpian for different reasons, but still a bit Trumpian. And knowing that uh, Lebanon was uh, colonized by uh, France. Uh, you, how is all of this being viewed, Laith Marouf? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, most of North Africa, Western Africa, and, and plus Syria and, and Lebanon were colonized by the French. Of course, uh, the most important thing when we think about all of that is how close to 30% of the population of France right now comes from North and West Africa, black and Arab uh, Muslims uh, that are targeted through state policy to uh, ban their rights to equal uh, status. And we, we understand uh, how that is playing out in the elections of France. In this situation, there's an awkwardness. What's happening is that we have uh, I don't know if and, um, many of our listeners have watched this, but there was a debate earlier this week uh, aired on television between the foreign affairs minister of France currently from the Macron uh, government and its and its governing party and uh, Marie Le Pen. And in it, the foreign minister is talking about how uh, Marie Le Pen is not strong enough in its anti-Muslim immigration and anti-Muslim um, positions for within France itself. So here we have the supposed liberal 
uh, the party that's governing the country, speaking to this uh, supposedly right-wing party leader, trying to one-up her in terms of his anti-immigrant policies and his his positions on discriminating against Muslims and blacks and Arabs that are citizens of this, the Republic of France. And, uh, if, you know, there was an, an even... So this shows us also uh, how in Europe and in the West, now there's two kinds of currents of right-wing um, positions. Yes, there is the, uh, the, most of it is fascist, like Marie Le Pen, um, but is sovereignist at the same time. And this follows also if we talk about uh, Romania um, and Orban. And then there is a, another kind of right-wing fascist parties, like the ones in Poland and Ukraine that are also Nazi, but they are pro-European, pro-American imperialist position. And this conflict is playing out in every European state, and we will see this increasing, uh, this uh, split even within the right wing on these positions. You know, the other part, and I'm glad you brought up this 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 odd contradiction, and I've heard it in the United States where um, Trump would do the Muslim ban and then you'd hear people say, you know, the Democrats, et cetera, say this is terrible, the Muslim ban. And then people would bring up a contradiction and then say, well, wait a minute, you guys overthrew Muslim country after Muslim country, bombed them. You destabilized the region, which caused a lot of Muslims to want to um, immigrate out of a region that you destabilized by bombing the crap out of it. And now this guy says, well, we want to stop Muslims from coming into the country. But can't you see the contradiction between saying I'm pro-Muslim when you destabilized the regions, created the Muslim immigration problem, and now you're mad because this guy has a different view on a Muslim immigration problem, and it all comes down to uh, exactly what you're saying, I guess, various strains of imperialism. Lathe. Yes, and, and it's this contradiction is, is weird because we know the ailing and the aging economies of uh, the empire in Europe and the, the United States and Canada and so forth require uh, the skimming of all the creme de la creme, the top, most, uh, you know, most productive parts of any uh, of the third world. And this, you know, part of the 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 process of colonization in this situation is emptying these lands of the most productive uh, workforces, their their brain power, everything, and making them desolate not only as 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 war fields, but also desolate in terms of their population production. Like uh, this is eugenics in a way when you steal all the top uh, most productive population parts of a country and you bring them. So the empire requires that. Uh, it's not, it's part of the colonial and imperialist power, but at the same time, it has to appease its population and make sure that they feel safe in their uh, whiteness of this, you know, and again, whiteness is a is a is an invented thing. There is no such thing as white people. Uh, there's Germanic. There's Anglo. I, I just want to make sure people understand that, uh, it, you know, that they are going to maintain the hegemony of this, uh, m you know, manufactured race or identity uh, while they are repopulating. The colonies, specifically like Canada and the United States, with 
people that are coming from places that are not Europe. She also says that she broadly supports sanctions against Russia, except when it comes to oil and gas. And I think that has to do with the fact that those prices are fueling economic uh, insecurity in the region. And then she also emphasizes an an inflation in the region. She also emphasizes that better ties with Russia would prevent Moscow from aligning too closely with China. I don't know how she figures all of that. What what, <laughs> what is that saying to you, Leith? She's trying to play both sides against yeah, the middle. Saying, it's saying it's saying that uh, it's clear that when you look at the economies of Europe and the and the United States and Canada and Australia, and you look at the actual consumption of uh, uh, you know fossil fuels and the sources of fossil fuels in the world, and you will see basically that. The Europe and the United States and Canada are the major consumers of all uh, the the flow of uh, of fossil fuels. And uh, uh, basically, even if if you cut off one of the main sources, like Russia, it will collapse the production cycle in the West. So it is, they are not able, even if they if they cut off Russia. Where are you going to replace us? You're already taking out all of Africa's uh, oil and gas and siphoning it to Europe. We don't even, you know, the, the, the gas and oil of Libya never stopped flowing into Italy. Mm-hmm. It's just not accounted for. It's just looted. They like, so how are you going to, with what are you going to replace it? The, 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 the Algerians are, are, are producing at maximum and selling it to the French and the Spanish and so there's no mm-hmm. replacement to the Russian uh, fossil fuels, and stopping it is a collapse of European economy. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Times of Israel reports, after Biden genocide claim against Russia, Macron says accusations won't end war. Leaders should be careful with language, French leader says, as he ramps up re-election campaign, echoing comments he made after U.S. president called uh, Russian President Putin a butcher. How important is this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. Uh, He holds the Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So I don't know if uh, President Macron making that statement makes him a a Russian bot or not, but how how significant is Macron's statement here in terms of how people taking it to heart? Well, it's very significant. Uh, it reflects the strains that Mr. Macron faces in light of the tough 
re-election battle that he is now waging. You may have seen the headlines with regard to his chief opponent, Madame Le Pen, of the so-called National Rally, formerly the National Front, a party with Islamophobic and anti-Semitic roots that she has tried to sanitize. But in any case, her candidacy, in a sense, is reflection of the failures and debilities of North Atlantic imperialism, which has, over the decades, sought to repress the left, including the once-powerful Communist Party of France, not to mention the once-powerful Socialist Party of France, which was in power just before Mr. Crohn uh, was elected to office in 2017. And so what's happened is that Madame Le Pen has basically adopted uh, certain left-wing platforms. She has demanded that France withdraw from the military wing of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, for example. She has called for the kind of strategic autonomy with regard to distancing of France from U.S. imperialism. And interestingly enough, she's called for a rapprochement with Moscow, which I think taps into what I perceive to be a broadening and widening anti-war sentiment amongst the electorates in the North Atlantic countries. So Mr. Macron is scrambling to not be overtaken by events, uh, hence his reprimand, implicit reprimand of Mr. Biden. And then the second point is that Mr. Biden, although, as we know, he's a gaffe machine, but I don't think that he chose the term genocide by accident, because it's well known in Washington lore that genocide is a term that's not just colloquial. It has profound meaning in terms of international law. Recall in April 1994, when you had the Rwanda genocide, that quite studiously, uh, Susan Rice, Assistant Secretary for Africa, uh, the President himself, Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State, they studiously avoided using the term genocide because using that term suggests that you should intervene in order to halt the genocide. And I'm sure that Mr. Macron sensed that, and hence he has treated the G word uh, with a 10-foot pole. Mr. Biden, who apparently is getting ever more desperate, the deeper he sinks into the quagmire in Eastern Europe, apparently has no such restraint. And then there's another point, too, and this may be, believe it or not, in this news-packed, news-filled week, this may be head and shoulders above the rest in terms of importance. What I'm pointing to is the fact that in light of the point that Europe, Western Europe is going to try to boycott Russian natural gas. They're scrambling to find other sources. And, of course, this is where the natural gas producers on the Texas-Louisiana border uh, begin to raise their ugly head. But also keep in mind that a supplier of natural gas to Western Europe has been Algeria. And what's happening now is that Algeria is playing hardball with regard to supplying natural gas to not only Spain, but Italy, and actually playing one against the other to its benefit. And so you have the spectacle of a turnabout in terms of relations between the so-called global north and global south, whereas 
it was not so long ago that it was routine and quite typical for the global north to manipulate one African country against another. Now, in light of these events in Eastern Europe, you see Algeria manipulating Spain against Italy. They're at each other's throats right now. And so the question then becomes, is that just a one-off, or is that a signal for a new trend, the fabled New World Order that some of us have been suggesting is in motion uh, as we speak, not only because of what I've just referenced concerning the Mediterranean and Algeria vis-a-vis Spain and Italy, but also with regard to how China continues to motor ahead and, in fact, is the ultimate target of this escapade in Eastern Europe, but it's something that is difficult to execute frontally and directly because of the fact that so many Fortune 500 corporations from the United States are embedded in China. And so, therefore, the gambit is to weaken China's ally, speaking of Moscow, so as to better encircle China. In any event, these are the events that are swirling. And it's up to us as analysts to try to come up with a narrative that makes sense of all of this so that our constituencies, so as our community can be well prepared for these Copernican developments. Something that you've been discussing uh, at length, and that is the, the blowback from sanctions, the blowback from the Ukrainian crisis, a couple of things I'll put together. Certainly, your discussion of Macron with um, the problems that he's having and the potential for loss, which would be a, um, I mean, a just an, an unbelievable blow to the um, U.S. empire's European coalition, but in, in any number of ways. But add a couple of things to that. This, the Ukrainians rejected the visit from German President Steinmeier, and the Germans are not happy about that as if they don't have enough things to be unhappy about. That's certainly their, their ruling coalition is in significant danger, and it would shock me if they make it to the end of the year. The, um, with all the hubris of his, st- his, his neocon State Department handlers, um, and we've discuss this, um, Vladimir Zelensky went to the Greek parliament, a a country with a long history of anti-fascism and a strong left um, sentiment and brought some Azov battalion fascists. All of these things to me kind of reflect some really, I mean, fissures that are growing very, very quickly in the U.S. empire's um, coalition in um, in Europe, your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're on to something. And uh, to your point, uh, recall my reference to Madame Le Pen, who in her very intriguing press conference yesterday, not only suggested what I've already noted concerning France withdrawing from the military wing of NATO, but she also took a shot at Germany, uh, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, she took a shot personally at the former Chancellor Merkel, which suggests that if she somehow wins against Macron, you will see a major rift within the European Union because the Berlin-Paris axis has been essential to the progress of the European Union. That's one of the reasons why uh, you saw uh, London, uh, Britain, withdraw from the EU because it did not want to be... uh, part of the pips is Berlin and Paris played Gladys Knight. And so it withdrew. Now, so if, 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 if uh, what 
Ms. Uh, Madam Le Pen said uh, becomes policy, uh, then Katie barred the door. With regard to Katie barring the door, I'm sure that that also applies to the remarks yesterday by Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen. Uh, she let the cat out of the bag by suggesting that countries that did not endorse the sanctions regime against Moscow could themselves be subjected to sanctions. And, of course, she did not have to mention the People's Republic of China, which, of course, reveals the essence of this whole escapade, which is somehow encircling, if not debilitating, China. And this needs to be taken very seriously in what we refer to as the Global South, not only because of what I said a moment ago in terms of maybe the tables being turned and countries like Algeria uh, getting more power than they had before, uh, but also we've already talked on this program about what happened in Pakistan. Uh, the destabilization of the prime minister, he changed charges credibly that the USCIA was upset with his closer relations to Moscow. That kind of destabilization, I'm afraid to say, uh, could spread like a virus and become pandemic uh, in the global south as Washington scrambles to avoid being overtaken by events. And once again, this returns me to another point that uh, we should not lose sight of. Uh, that is to say that uh, Washington, pardon the expression, and stick with me here, Washington, in a sense, has reason to be hysterical, particularly hysterical about Moscow, because it was the Soviet Union that helped to engineer events that led to the uh, uh, liberation of Africa from colonial rule, uh, by funding liberation movements, arming liberation movements, etc. And now you have the post-Soviet regime that is blamed for engineering events that lead to empowerment of nations like Algeria. And so this gives added sustenance and resonance to a remarkable statement in yesterday's New York Times. You can look it up where a writer says that there is a, quote, collective character flaw, unquote, amongst Russians. And so, therefore, it's justifiable to discriminate against all Russians, and up to and including uh, banning them from running in the Boston Marathon, even if they're anti-war. Now, this is extraordinary. I thought that the limit had been reached when it was decided to not allow the music of the centuries-long deceased uh, composer Tchaikovsky to be played, or the novels of Dostoevsky not to be read. But we're getting to a level of hysteria that, quite frankly, could tip into something that's more dangerous than anything we've seen for generations. That statement, collective character flaw, sounds very Brzezinski-esque and it is really, I think, at, at one of the fundamental tenets or elements of American policy since Brzezinski has been so important in formulating that policy. But let me ask you this. Your talking about Marie Le Pen makes me ask this question. If she is able to win the election— what will be the challenges she faces formulating a government? Because we know in a parliamentary system that uh, alliances have to be developed and, and, and coalitions have to be formed. So it's one thing to win. It's another thing to govern. 
She sounds uh, there are a lot of Trumpian elements to her rhetoric. Uh, so does she uh, if she wins, does she then find a problem finding the coalitions necessary to govern? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, I'm a staunch opponent uh, of her party. Second of all, that there are parliamentary elections a few weeks after the presidential election, and she would have to do extraordinarily well in order to have some leverage in the French parliament. A third, she has alienated a good deal of the French population, mm-hmm. not only the Islamic population, but mm-hmm. also a good deal of the French left, which did quite well mm-hmm. uh, in the elections. In fact, as a matter of fact, they're the, the key swing vote that may pull the chestnuts out of the fire for President Macron. So the good news is, is that if she's elected, she'll be terribly weak. Mm, that's my point. And she'll be terribly weak and will not be able to wreak as much havoc as some might imagine. And as we as we get out, it, it sounds as though she's trying to to sound more nationalistic or more populist, more populist, again, very Trumpian and to to kind of mask her fascism. Well, that's true. And I think also what should not be lost sight of, especially on this side of the Atlantic, is that there is a deep and pervasive strain of anti-Yankee sentiment, not only in France, but I would dare say throughout the world. And she's playing upon that uh, quite adroitly. That's the import of her talking about withdrawing from NATO, where she said, that NATO is clearly dominated by the United States. Moscow is referred to the European Union as the economic department of NATO, which means it's the economic department of Washington. And the proud French nationals, who are quite and justifiably proud of the French Revolution, 1789, do not want to be a poodle for Mr. Biden. It leaves me with a contradiction, a contradiction that says, I don't like a lot about her policies, But something inside Garland really wants Macron to lose. So I'm left with a contradiction there. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Bye-bye. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams reports Brazil's Lula vows to end illegal mining on indigenous lands. Everything this government has decreed against indigenous peoples must be repealed immediately, Lula said in a swipe at far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a regional election observer and last year for the Venezuelan elections, co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela and president of the Hands Off Venezuela Club at the University of North Florida, Alex Suarez. Alex, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So indigenous activists on Tuesday welcomed a promise from Brazilian president, uh, presidential candidate uh, Luis uh, Inácio Lula da Silva to immediately revoke far-right President Jair Bolsonaro's policies, including laws and opponents say facilitate the destruction and exploitation of native lands. Uh, how does this portend 
for Lula going forward? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that he's a presidential candidate because there is presidential elections coming up in October. And Lula is very popular, but Bolsonaro might play some tricks to try to uh, stay in power. Um, I plan to be a election observer in Brazil for that, so we'll see how that turns out. But Lula, uh, you know, because he's on the left, tends to be on the side of the indigenous and the environmentalists. And Bolsonaro, who takes a lot of uh, what they call donations uh, from the cattle ranchers, he's the one that's more for encroaching on that land and destroying the wearing forest uh, in order to have more land for the cattle ranchers. Another uh, some things going on in Venezuela um, that I'd like to speak to you about. Also, one of them, uh, there was a meeting Cuban and uh, Venezuelan Cuba strengthened cooperation in key sectors. Cuban president receives Venezuelan vice president. And this is at the same time that Venezuela is commemorating their their coup defeat um, anniversary. All these things come together because one of the things that Hugo Chavez was known for was providing assistance to other countries anti-imperialist uh, forces in the region and wherever he could. And um, I recently saw something that said Venezuela's economy is expected to grow 20 percent this year. So they're really on the comeback with help from some of the anti-imperialist forces around the world. And it certainly seems that they are hearkening back to a time when they could help Cuba and other anti and Haiti and other countries like that in the region. Your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I mean, pretty soon the United States is going to be uh, begging to be able to buy Russian oil again. Uh, but Venezuelans getting the best deals. They have wonderful diplomatic relations with Russia and, of course, with Cuba. And uh, once the Venezuelans are able to refine their crude oil, uh, they're able to uh, to sell oil uh, for good prices to their Cuban allies as well. I believe that was signifying that. And also, it's important to understand how close Hugo Chavez was to being assassinated and what the repercussions of that was. Uh, yesterday was the 20th anniversary, so in April of 2002, this was the year before the United States went into Iraq and then became more preoccupied with the Middle East. Um, you know, they literally uh, kidnapped uh, Chavez from the presidential palace. Uh, he refused to sign his resignation. Uh, they put him on an island, and he was... Uh, getting ready to die. They were going to execute him. And suddenly there was a rebellion. And I actually spoke to somebody who was at this rebellion among the one million people at the uh, Mira Flores presidential palace that I saw when I was in Venezuela. So a million people showed up to demand a return of Chavez and to demand that the puppet get out of the palace. And the uh, coup leaders, of course, backed by the United States, freaked out and they, they sent a helicopter to, to bring Chavez back. And that's when he was able to accomplish what he was trying to accomplish, and uh, the rest is history. But yeah, the the Chavistas and the Venezuelans uh, commemorated that important anniversary, remembering how close they were to, to return to a fascist regime. So as we look at the further development of relationships, uh, particularly between Venezuela and Cuba, I wrote a piece uh, a while ago, The Non-Aligned Nations Realign, where the, the point of that piece was based upon United States hegemony uh, and sanctions that the United States was forcing countries uh, to, to uh, establish relations or develop even better relations in order to confront the oppression that they all found themselves under by the United States. With that being said, as I look at what's happening with Venezuela and Cuba, it makes me wonder, bringing Haiti into the relationship then alienates the United States even further. Absolutely. There is a security um, company out of Melbourne, Florida, 
um, that had mercenaries that they sent not only to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, uh, to assassinate the, the leader there, uh, but also they were among the Americans that were captured in Venezuela that crossed the Colombian border to try to capture or assassinate Maduro in exchange for bounty money. So there is a direct correlation between the meddling in Haiti and the destabilizing of Haiti, who was a strong Venezuelan ally, and the same forces that are used by the CIAs and others uh, to try to destabilize Venezuela and to prevent their alliances with other progressive Caribbean nations. So, you know, when you talk about the um, the coup in, um, you know, the the the, the, the it, it, what I find interesting, the celebration of the, um, you know, overcoming the coup in um, in in uh, Venezuela. One of the things that I found in talking to the people there, I, I, I am convinced the U.S. could not move militarily on Venezuela because they couldn't occupy it. Because when you talk to the down to the last person, they're like, oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Every last person is ready to pick up a stick or a rock. I mean, 30 million people would fight um, if any and country are armed. and they are armed and they have militias. And they, it just seems to me that it, they 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 have spines of, of titanium there. Um, your thoughts on how they view the coup and how they view their responsibility to, as they specifically said to me, protect our democracy. The exact words they say. Your thoughts. Yeah, Garland, I said on your show the other day, the actual Venezuelans that captured the American mercenaries in, in the last uh, coup attempt um, in Venezuela uh, were not the regular forces. Uh, they were a fishermen. Mm -hmm. uh, the militia fishermen had successfully captured uh, those mercenaries and turned them over uh, to the Venezuelan authorities. So, you know, in the border regions and throughout the country, you have regular people that are that, that are militias, that are armed, that are there to prevent any type of uh, foreign invasion. If we look at this as uh, a chess match, understanding that global imperial hegemons don't go quietly into the night, how do you see the, the next couple of years, because I just can't imagine the United States just folding up its tent and going home. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to take... Uh, public pressure at home uh, to change the policies of Washington, not just the resistance of the Venezuelan people or any people um, in the global south that they're trying to subjugate. Um, I think once there's a successful anti-imperialist movement within the U.S. empire, that could potentially uh, start to change the imperial policies. And I see the United States as an empire in decay and is doing all these desperate acts you know, capturing diplomats, making them president to moves, uh, you know, uh, flagrant uh, violations of international law, things that we've never seen before. Like, but, So, you know, the United States has been out of control before, but the level of lawlessness and, and insanity that we're seeing lately um, shows an empire in decay trying in its last grasp to maintain power. And once the United States loses that role as an empire, those anti-imperialist movements that are already in place within the nation itself uh, will start to become more successful. Uh, recently, President Maduro spoke on um, the Ukrainian um, uh, uh, crisis, and he also said, as have many other, as has many others, that he viewed that as uh, I'm going to put my words into it, kind of the birthplace of a new world order. It seems to me that countries that have been under harsh international sanctions kind of see. Actually, oddly enough, at least in the long term, some daylight here wherein a new at least economic world order may arise where they can't be locked out by U.S. dollar hegemony. Your thoughts? 
Yes, uh, because of the socialist government in place in Venezuela for the last 20 years, and I noticed this talking with average Venezuelans on the, on the street, they're very educated people. They're very aware of geopolitics. You can ask any Venezuelan about Israel-Palestine, Ukraine-Russia, etc. Um, and because they're so educated, uh, Maduro has the leeway to speak to them about Ukraine and the people already be well-versed in what's going on there. You know, a lot of Americans now that, that claim to be experts on foreign policy, you know, since we're sending weapons to, to Nazis in Ukraine, they couldn't find Ukraine on a map. But uh, the Venezuelans are very uh, well-versed in geopolitics, and so that's why I'm not surprised that Maduro, uh, who's an ally of Russia, is talking about those issues to the people. One of the things that has struck me as we've been covering these various elections over the last year or so is how many of them are people-led, how many of them are indigenous-led. They said, for example, neoliberalism began in Chile and it has now died in Chile, Uh, whether it's Nicaragua. Uh, There are so many people-led movements here that uh, indigenous people being elected to run their countries, and this to me speaks volumes to to how to the to the to the probability of success for these governments in the future. Absolutely, and Pedro Castillo and my father's nation of Peru—he's uh, mestizo but mostly indigenous. Um, he's recently restored diplomatic relations with Venezuela, which is very significant because the Lima Group, obviously based in Lima, Peru, that, that has the different oligarchic right-wing uh, Latin American uh, regimes that were hostile to Venezuela and the other socialist governments, uh, that fell apart when the left rose up in Peru, and then it rose up in Chile and other areas. So, uh, you know, seeing that unity and seeing that empowerment of the indigenous people, you know, whether in the Amazon in Brazil, in Venezuela itself, in Peru, et cetera, is helping to, once again, like in the early 2000s, uh, the left rise up in Latin America. And um, do you see, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Brazil? And, and uh, certainly, uh, the I think his last name is Petro in Colombia. It seems like that there is a some major moves to the left going on, and in particular, anti-imperialism. We've got one minute. Yeah, like work in Chile, uh, Petro in Colombia is center-left, and they're having presidential elections come up in May. Uh, hopefully Duque is out because, like I mentioned last time, Duque is not popular at all. A lot of people with different sectors of Colombian society have been rising up against him. Alex Suarez, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The suspect in the New York City subway mass shooting called in the tip that led to his capture, according to reports. He was arrested yesterday, according to authorities. And for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst, traveled extensively in the Middle East and Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris in the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure thing. Glad to be here, as always. 
Uh, Frank James, 62, was arrested yesterday afternoon in connection to the mass shooting in the subway in the Sunset Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. After authorities received a tip about his whereabouts, he's charged with a federal terrorism offense. And it's uh, reported that he called in the tip on his whereabouts and that uh, the, the call went into Crime Stoppers. Uh, Caleb Moppin, odd, but I think speaks volumes about his mental state. Well, you know, I hope he's the guy who did it. Let me just put it that way. You know, I mean, you know, it, it would be great if the guy who did this horrendous crime was taken off the street and, and you know, locked up and, and charged and, and all of that. But I, I must say, you know, the more I look into this, the more I'm going, um, hmm, what's going on here? You'll remember the, the original report said that the shooter was five foot five. This guy's six feet tall. The other thing is his biography doesn't quite match the biography of a mass shooter. Uh, this is a guy who's been a habitual criminal. Uh, you know, he's got all kinds of arrests for theft of service, jumping turnstiles, sexual assaults. Uh, that doesn't quite add up. You know, it's generally not habitual criminals uh, who, who do kind of, you know, random low-level crimes that then kind of turn around and out of the blue commit mass shootings. That's generally not how it works. Uh, his age is not exactly right. This guy is, I believe, 62 years old, uh, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. You know, and that's, again, it tends to be younger people. Now, the only exception I can think of is that that shooting out in Nevada. There was that guy who shot uh, shot the, the concert goers at the country music at, at mm-hmm. Las Vegas. That guy was older. But generally, it's younger men who do this. So I got questions here. But, you know, we'll have to look at the evidence. Um, you know, uh, I, I guess. One thing I will say is in a case like this, there's going to be a huge amount of pressure for the police to, to announce case closed. A lot of people are terrified, wondering how, how could this have happened. People are wondering if the subways are safe. we got a new mayor here in, in the city, Eric Adams, who's trying to say that he's turning things around when it comes to crime. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of pressure to nab somebody. Um, the, the fact that he turned himself in, uh, that is a little bit suspicious, especially because I watched the press conference yesterday. I watched that press conference yesterday uh, where the police were up there. And I mean, you would have thought this was like amazing police work that they they cornered him and they tracked him down. You know, it was kind of like, was it John McCain? If we're going to fall it, we're going to have to go to the gates of hell to get bin Laden. We're going to get him. It was like this great act of police work and all the, you know, Sergeant this and detective that is getting up. And it's like they, you know, they had the greatest manhunt of the year and they nabbed him. And now we find out he, he called up from McDonald's uh, and he said, this Come is get where me. I am. Come get me. I, I'm, I'm seeing my face on TV. You probably want to get me. So, um, you know, uh, th- that, that raises some questions. But I'm always very suspicious of anything related to the police uh, and in particular the NYPD because of uh, how bizarre things have gotten over the past few years and the controversies around stop, stop and frisk and the fight between them and the city council. And now we have a mayor who's much more sympathetic, a former police officer himself. But the previous mayor was seen as being anti-cop and the defund the police. And there's a lot of city politics involved here. This isn't just a case of tracking down the bad guys. That said, though, what happened was absolutely horrendous. I was on the scene reporting for RT International. Um, You know, I had my phone out. I was on Skype. And, um, you know, I mean, it was that whole area, which is not that far from where I live, I'll be honest. Uh, it was a little bit terrifying, you know. I mean, my wife and I would go through that subway station every day. You know, that was where we would change trains on the way to work. And uh, utterly terrifying, this kind of thing can happen. I mean, it speaks to the, the nature of U.S. society being highly conducive to insanity. 
uh, uh, so you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of genuine fear and and sadness on the part of the city that something horrendous like this could take place. And and I absolutely agree that whoever is responsible needs to be brought to justice as quickly as possible. I'm glad that you've expressed the concerns that you have because here's a concern of mine when I heard about the arrest. There seems to be, to me, inconsistency with how seemingly meticulous he was to set this thing up and then how sloppy he was in the execution of it. He goes to New Jersey to get a a rental car. He does a number of things to avoid detection, but then is sloppy enough to leave the bag with all of the things in it on the train, uh, the key to the vehicle. There are just a number of things that seem inconsistent. If you're going to go all the way to New Jersey to get a truck, that tells me either there are no trucks in New York or you don't want to be detected. He goes that far to do all of that, but then is as sloppy as he is in the final execution of the thing. Right. I mean, he left the keys to his rental car at the site of the, the crime. <laughs> I mean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not not quite following it. But then again, okay. I mean, you know, I mean, this, this is not the kind of thing one that is in a normal, healthy mental state does. Correct. So, you know, you know, so, I mean, again, it's very possible this guy could have been the one who did it. We'll, we'll find out the evidence of the trial, but I'm already starting to have questions. Let me just put it that way. Moving to um, international politics, there's, an I think, a very good article, and it is written by Ramsey Baroud for Gulf News, a very excellent article, Why China and Russia Seek a Multipolar World Order. What I think is interesting, you know, Nicolas Maduro has came out the other day and talked about the importance of the Ukraine and how that, you know, this is not just about Ukraine, it's about reordering the world. Your thoughts on the article, your thoughts on Russia and China's, you know, seeking a multipolar world order? Yeah, well, Russia and China are two countries that over the course of the 20th century pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Uh, You know, they were both deeply, deeply poor, agrarian, non-industrialized, non-electrified countries with massive literacy and extreme poverty, uh, living in, you know, almost medieval level conditions, feudalism, uh, agrarian, you know, conditions in the countryside, peasant countries. Uh, In 1917, Russia had a revolution, uh, and they were immediately invaded after that revolution by 15 different countries. They fought a big, long civil war. But starting in 1928, they launched a program of socialist industrialization and built themselves up very rapidly and and almost, you know, almost overnight. I mean, it was in one, two, three years. All of a sudden, they had become a fully electrified country. They'd wiped out illiteracy. They had they had built the largest steel mills in, in the world, the largest steel industry in the world. They had built the largest power plant in the world at that time, the Dnieper Dam, located in Ukraine. And they'd done some really, really amazing things. And then the Nazis invaded and killed 27 million people. And they then built it back up again and invented space travel and invented LED lights and invented, uh, invented uh, the AK-47 rifle and had great achievements and, and kind of rapidly pulled themselves ahead. China... You know, 1949, when the Communist Party came to power, there wasn't a single steel mill in China, and deaths of malnutrition happened every year. Now China is the second largest economy in the entire world. And that is why the United States can't stand Russia and China, because they used to be impoverished, captive market client states where the people there were deeply poor, where they had to import their products from the West, where American businesses could set up shop. uh, And, you know, it used to be the oil fields of Azerbaijan were under the control of, of British, uh, British oil companies and, and banks. And it used to be that China was a place that American 
companies and British companies could make lots of money selling opium, uh, opium, and you know, and, and blowing nar- narcotics into the place. Uh, but now both of those countries are strong countries economically uh, that have had great achievements, and they did that largely with socialist economics. Russia is no longer led by the Communist Party. China has a very big market sector at this point, but. Both of them did this by kind of breaking out of the, the rule of profits and the Western capitalist system. Um, and uh, they are seen as opponents on the global stage. Uh, there's been this longtime setup where the whole world is centered around the West, around Western capitalism, around uh, the United States, Britain, France, Germany, etc. And now they are bringing on the specter of a multipolar world. Where there are other axes of power. Uh, on the global stage, and that is a threat to those who have ruled the world for so long and are trying to retain their grip on power. I think it's also important to point out two things. One, both Russia and China were able to achieve the successes that they've achieved by turning inward and changing their perceptions of themselves. China deciding we will no longer be viewed as the poor man of Asia, and I think Russia Uh, deciding that they were no longer going to be perceived as the poor, disparate people of Europe. And also they did it with systems that are different than the dominant capitalist system of the United States. And the United States fears that that mentality being replicated and that those economies being replicated leaves the United States in the dust. If I could throw one thing in there, Mm -hmm. even though Russia isn't a socialist country, they have nationalized their gas and oil and they use that to fund their government. And that is just that's the same thing as far as the neocons are concerned. Uh, Your thoughts, uh, uh, Caleb? Sure. Right. In the 90s, Russia was having a, you know, an economic meltdown after the fall of the Soviet Union with shock therapy economics. But Putin fixed that by putting oil and gas under public ownership. And the economic model of Russia, where you have a state-run energy company that then subsidizes the industrial sector, subsidizes their steel industry, their titanium, their power plants, their farming boom. Now Russia's an agricultural power like it's never been. Uh, huge exports of wheat, et cetera. Uh, that model um, is very similar to what was done by the bot uh, socialist countries, uh, you know, like Iraq, uh, what was done by Libya, uh, what's, what, what's been done elsewhere in the world, and the, the use of state-controlled natural resources. I think Vladimir Putin, in his academic dissertation, referred to, the, to them as national champions, the idea that you can build up a certain industry, um, that you know, the state can build up a certain industry and utilize that to, to kind of subsidize the rest of the economy. Uh, this is not a Marxist concept. This is actually, uh, this comes from, you know, this is, you can draw from the writings of Friedrich List, uh, the German econ- economist, uh, you know, uh, I believe um, there was a similar concept in France called dirgeism, uh, you know, and that this is the idea of kind of the state subsidizing certain industries, using them to rebuild the economies. And that is that is certainly an impediment, especially because the world runs on oil and the world runs on natural gas. And uh, every every ounce of oil and gas Russia sells is an ounce of oil and gas somebody did not buy. Uh, from, you know, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron. And they are a competitor uh, in a, on a very, very vital commodity on the world market. We have just about a minute and a half left. A piece in the sacred. Here comes China. The world rotated one more time. The world rotated one more time since the last report on China. And that China is rock solid uh, behind Russia in all its objectives. And this isn't stated in the in this article, but you've got Janet Yellen threatening China if China continues to back Russia. 
as it relates to Ukraine. And it's not so much that China is, quote unquote, backing Russia. It's that China isn't backing the United States condemnation of Russia. Yeah, well, you know, China really tries to kind of take it easy, uh, you know, you know, not escalate. They try to say, you know, we want resolution, we want dialogue. Their style is not to make harsh accusations. But the United States has been so belligerent and demanding that China join the USA and NATO in their, their outrageous attacks on China when, uh, or on, on Russia, when China is very economically tied in with Russia, that they've basically forced you know, China into a situation where they're going to say, fine, you know, if you really want us to take a stand, we're on Russia's side. There you go. Thank you, United States. Um, and it's kind of like you have to wonder, like, what is the goal of U.S. leaders when you have a, a country as big as China that's already kind of geopolitically opposed to the United States? And they're kind of neutral. They're not 100 percent on Russia's side. You would think it would be strategic for the United States to kind of hold on to that situation as long as possible, maybe. Uh, but we see the opposite. We see this, you know, this belligerent demand mm-hmm. that they take a stand. So they did. And it's the stand that the United States doesn't like. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you have been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 